Kevin McDonald Show. Oh, 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 the Kevin McDonald Show. Oh, 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 the Kevin McDonald, Kevin McDonald Show. That's all. It's your turn. It's the Kevin McDonald Show. Welcome to Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald Show. I am your announcer for this evening. I'd like to start the show the way I start most things, including sex with my wife. With a warning. 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 This is an audio podcast. And as we all know, Mr. McDonald is a physical comedian and will lose 62% of his laughs in an audio performance. Case in point, a Kevin McDonald gag that only the live audience can see. I won't! <laughs> and now, a Kevin McDonald gag in the dark. Alex, please turn off the lights. Not as funny. Lights up, please, Alex. So I am here as a human voiceover to help explain to our listening audience how Mr. McDonald is being funny. Yes, a voiceover tonight. I'll just be a voice. A shame, really, because as our live audience can clearly see, I am quite a beautiful man. Quite a beautiful man. Nordic cheekbones, a cleft within a cleft chin, only one in a billion has it. Beautiful sensual earlobes, and my beautiful bluish, greenish, black, green, blue eyes. A beautiful, beautiful man. I love me. I mean, who could blame me for touching myself? A lot. No one. Not even one of our ugly male judges in our ugly Supreme Court. <laughs> Earlier today, Mr. McDonald stood before me in the rehearsal, touching me with the back of his hand on my cheek and weeping from my beauty. Just weeping while still touching me. Who could blame him? Not me. Not an ugly male Supreme Court justice. No one. God, I love me. And now, it's time to get things less beautiful and introduce a man who is 62% less funny without me, Mr. Kevin McDonald. Mr. McDonald just tripped over the chair again for our listening audience. See, much funnier with me, Kevin. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you, and welcome to this uh, Kevin McDonald podcast thing. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Two things are happening tonight. Two things on this Kevin McDonald podcast thing. A, Kevin McDonald. And B, podcast. <laughs> now, Kevin McDonald, I understand. Um, a lumpy son of a dental equipment salesman born in Montreal in the early 60s. 
A weakling who was forced to play football as a teenager and who once actually got injured in the huddle. In the huddle. Injured. Broke a rib. In the huddle. Yes, a weakling who, because of his alcoholic father, grew up to be a passive-aggressive prick that tries to please people. True story. And say yes to everything, even though he's thinking, no, that's crazy, I would never do that, I hate you. And when he does say no every once every six and a half months, he does it in an ugly, way too angry, awful, son of a prick, cocksucker kind of way, which he follows up immediately with an apology, even though he doesn't mean it. It's true. I saw that happen at least three times today. Fuck off, you fucking voiceover fucker fuck! I hear your cry for help, Kevin. I apologize, announcer, and I am so, so sorry for yelling at you just now. It was unfair, and I was totally in the wrong. That's all right. It's because I'm beautiful. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful, Kevin. Thank you very much. I will anyway. Yes, Kevin McDonald, I understand. It's podcast that confuses me. Podcast? I'm an old man. What is podcast? Is it like a fancy radio show? Showbiz has changed a lot since I first started out. In the 80s, comedy was a completely different ball game. You had your funny man, you blah, 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 blah. When I was a struggling young comic, you made it the old-fashioned way. You dreamed about being an actor. You did as many high school plays as you could. You went to college for acting. You got kicked out after three months from college for acting. You joined workshop classes led by a man named Ellen Gutman. You met four other guys named Dave, Scott, Scott Bruce, and Mark, who, who were also from the suburbs and had drunk fathers. One of them was usually a sex-crazed genius named Scott who you once catch in your apartment masturbating with a heat, heated carrot shoved up his ass. <laughs> True story. <laughs> you, you wrote and performed some comedy skits. You were discovered by a TV legend, usually Lauren Michaels. You, he gave you a TV show. You did a movie called Brain Candy that cost $8 million, yet only grows $3 million. But I guess I'm just old-fashioned. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes, after the Kids in the Hall show, I moved to Hollywood where I tried to create a sitcom for myself to star in. As soon as I failed at that, I went to Plan B, guest spots and TV shows by other comics who did get sitcoms to star in. And when that dried up, it was on to Plan C, leads in low-budget indie movies that no one ever saw. And then Plan D, small parts in low-budget indie movies that no one ever saw. You know when you're playing the best friend of Kato Kalin. <laughs> in a parody of the Titanic called The Wet Boat. <laughs> that you are stuck in the mud at the bottom of the well that is Plan D. Oh, I get it. I get what a podcast is. Plan E. I'm doing Plan E. I better get this right. I'm, I'm running out of letters. And now it's time for a sketch as we take you to a... I'm sorry, but I missed lunch today. Rehearsal took forever because Mr. McDonald kept weeping about how beautiful I was. <laughs> so he's taking us all out to dinner immediately after the recording, which means I'm going to have to have dinner in 45 minutes, so I better have lunch now. I could have lunch after dinner, but that would get confusing because I also happen to be having breakfast after dinner. I missed breakfast today when Mr. McDonald came over to my private home to weep this morning before sunrise. I'm a beautiful man, it happens. 
I guess I just won the genetics lottery of births. And now, our little comedy sketch begins with a man who seems to be in a mild state of shock, entering the kitchen of his own home. Okay, okay, all right, all right, okay. Everything's good, everything's fine. Paid the bills, fed the cat, murdered my wife. Okay, okay, excellent. No one will blame me for murdering her. Nobody liked her. Everybody disliked her. Friends, neighbors, DJs, Stephen Hawking. Everyone. Her mother said, you know one day Alan will probably kill you. Who wouldn't? Oh, mental note. Kill mother-in-law slash character witness. Okay. All right. Life goes on. Life goes on. What to do? What to do? What's going on today? What's happening? Let's look at the calendar and fridge under the magnet of a dead wife that my mother-in-law gave me for Christmas. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Apparently, my wife and I are giving a party at the house tonight. Excellent. Just wonderful. A party at the death house. Excellent. That's what I need right now, a party in a house full of people with a body in the basement. Okay, all right, calm down, calm down. Maybe a party is a good thing. You need fun right now. Let, let's, let's take a gander at the guest list. Yeah, it'll be fun. Let's look at the guest list. Uh, the Petersons, Jim and Debbie, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Excellent! Sherlock Holmes is coming over. Having a party tonight with a dead body in the basement and my wife, the star fucker, has invited Sherlock Holmes, master detective. Thank you, Eva. Fantastic. Well, at least the party doesn't start till six. Ding dong. It's six. Fantastic. Kevin opens the door. He takes a while because he has flat feet. That's not in the script. I just thought you should know that because he talks about it all day long. A couple, Jim and Debbie, enters. Hello, Jim. Hello, Debbie. Oh, no, no, no. I'm Jim. <laughs> and I'm Debbie. We had alternative parents. Yes, both of us. Remember? Both sets of parents thought it would be cool to give a boy a girl's name and a girl a boy's name. And they were right. When we met, it was alternative love at alternative first sight. <laughs> Obviously. Now we're alternative parents. Obviously. Just ask our two children, Sunshine Walter and I Am Not a Chair. <laughs> or chair for short. <laughs> hey, uh, where uh, does the party start? You know what? Uh, I have to cancel the party. I don't think anyone is coming. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. As we hear the sound of many people entering party, party. the house. Fees and carrots, fees and carrots, fees and carrots. Watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. Watermelon, hi, 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 parties. Great! Excellent! 60 people at the party. I'm popular. Excellent! A half hour goes by. There are many people at the party. They all remark about Kevin's flat feet. It's so flat. Sorry, it's, so it's not in the script, but he Beer. really won't stop talking so about it. Party sounds, glasses clinking, like many blanks? people talking politics. Hey, I think everyone is here, uh, except Sherlock Holmes. I guess he's not coming. Ding, dong. Hey, it's Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Mr. Bennett, I presume. 
Thank you for the party invitation. Sherlock Holmes, welcome to my house. Uh, uh, sorry my wife couldn't be here. She, uh, went to the, uh, she went to, uh, she went to alibis. <laughs> for milk. It's a milk store. Called alibis. Oh, I was so looking forward to seeing your wife again. It's funny. I see a woman's touch everywhere in the house, such as the doormat with bright colors and several candles on the mantelpiece. Yet I can tell your wife hasn't been around for at least seven hours, if not more, because there seems to be no vacuuming or dusting done. <coughs> even though you are both giving the party. <laughs> Come on, Sherlock, it's a party. All work and no play makes Sherlock a dull boy. It's a party. Come on. Yes. I just want to take a sample of this rug dust first. Sherlock, you're at a party. It's fun time. Time to have fun. Chip and dip. <laughs> Strange. You handed me the bowl of chips with your right hand, and yet, by the way the chips were placed in the bowl, it's obvious that it was done by a left-handed person who I assume to be your wife. Why would she put chips in a bowl and not be there? Come on, Sherlock, turn off that mind of yours. It's a party. Let's dance, everyone. Kevin walks to the stereo and turns on loud music. Sherlock walks to the stereo and turns it off. His feet are perfect. Beautiful popcorn toes and a soft biscuit for a heel. By the tear of your thumbnail and the slight rip on the sleeves of your shirt, it seems that you've been doing something physical recently. I need to ask you some questions, Mr. Bennett. How much does your house weigh? 32,000 pounds. <laughs> I just know. Hmm... It feels more like 32,128 pounds. 128 pounds? Isn't that how much your wife weighs, Alan? Shut up, Debbie. 32,128 pounds. And yet you say your wife isn't here. Curious. Okay, cocaine time! <laughs> Having read a little bit about you, Sherlock, uh, I know you like the nose candy. Ah, uh, yes. Cocaine quickens the mind in the quest for truth. The sign of the four would still be a mystery were it not for a good old-fashioned eight ball. No cocaine, out of cocaine. Booze, on the other hand, dulls the senses and slows the mind. Booze time! Uh, come on, Holmes, let's get this party started and do some drinking! All right, but I warn you, it makes me handsy.
Kevin pours scotch into the tallest, narrowest glass in the world. Here, have a double, 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 double. Sherlock takes a big sip of the drink, and then another, and then another, in vino veritas. Well, I have been working very hard. I do need to rest sometimes. And it's very hard to always be thinking and looking for little details everywhere. And I do it 24-7. What am I, a 7-Eleven? I understand, Sherlock. I, I'm always at work, too. Work, work, work. That's why it's so great to finally be at a party. What do you do for a living? I'm a party planner. Sherlock keeps drinking and is getting very drunk. I mean, even Sherlock Holmes needs a vacation sometimes. <laughs> even I need a drink now and then, or even some time with a woman on the old odd weekends. I totally understand. Have another drinks. And... Uh, Believe me, I score with the ladies. I know you do. I know you do. One in particular. Ah, sweet Ava. Sweet, sweet Ava. Ava is my wife's name. I know. I can't hide it from you anymore, Alan. I admit it. I'm having an affair with your left-handed wife. I knew it! The left-handed whore! Sir, what would your wife say if she were here? That I killed her. <gasps> I mean... I see. I'm sorry to tell you, Bennett, but I'm not drunk at all. I've been... I've been... Pouring the alcohol down a tube inside my clothes that leads to my pants. Right now, I have very wet underwear. And I found a murderer. Chip and dip. And I wasn't having an affair with your wife but I could ascertain that she had disappeared and that you had something to do with it, so I used my acting skills... Fucking Stanislavski approach. To, ...to figure out what exactly happened and get a confession out of you. Obviously, she was having an affair with someone, and once you found that out, it pushed you over the edge to murder. Yes, I admit it. I admit it, I killed her. I killed her with her own oven mitts. You will be charged with murder and possession of cocaine. And if I could have you arrested for playing blues traveler at a party, I would do that as well. I guess you got me. Well done, Mr. Holmes. Thank you. Okay, now let's do the coke.
That was the Sherlock Holmes at the party sketch. And I will now read my review of Kevin McDonald's punchline for the Sherlock Holmes sketch. Okay, now let's do the Coke. Okay, now let's do the Coke. Is this what Mr. McDonald calls a punchline to a sketch these days? Is this how the mighty Sherlock Holmes at a party sketch is really going to end? I can imagine Mr. McDonald sitting by his typewriter. Yes, he still uses a typewriter, saying to himself, hmm, imagine Sherlock Holmes saying, okay, now let's do the Coke. How incongruous. It's funny because that is something that Sherlock Holmes would never say. Just like if I, if Tarzan said, you pass hash brownie, Tarzan went hash brownie. Yeah, that's much funnier. Next podcast, I think I'll write my Tarzan hash sketch. For all you listeners, I have now stopped pretending to be Mr. McDonald. And I'm shaking my head at him. In this punchline, really from the same man who in 1992, in the fourth sketch of episode six of The Kids in the Hall, season three, wrote the now classic punchline, of course I'm the hairdresser. Why else would I be standing here with a blow dryer? It seems painfully obvious that Mr. McDonald's golden punchline days are over. In fact, he hasn't even bothered to write a punchline for this far too long and out-of-place review bit that I'm doing right now. This... Oh, thank you, Kevin. I was done reading that shaft of dialogue. And here comes the punchline now. Hi, everybody. Tim Heidecker here with huge news. We have... A terrific episode of Office Hours Live prepared for you. We had the great stand-up comedian Kyle Kinane come in and a very special in-studio music session from legendary Emdu Mokhtar. You're not going to want to miss this one. You can find it on your podcast app of choice by going to Sears or Macy's and getting an iPod and then coming home, charging it up and listening through your app. sad fading faux genius talent of Kevin McDonald has decided for me to end this monologue. And now the punchline to the punchline reviewer sketch. <clears throat> now that I'm finished th doing this review, hey Holmes, don't hog all that coke. <laughs> all right, lights off. And now, an interview with Wallace Shawn. I'm very, I'm so excited. If I wasn't excited, I would lie and say I was excited, but I don't have to lie, I'm so excited. Please give a big hand. He's a legend, Wallace Shawn! Hello. Hi, Wally. Hey. May I just say that uh, you saying I warn you um, I get a little handsy will be the highlight of my life. Yeah. <laughs> <You said this laughs> to me. 
Uh, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, uh, can we start, me being a bad interviewer, by asking, you, you told me a, a, a story that I liked about the interview you did once that didn't go that well. Do you remember which one? <laughs> well, Before all, this one. The next story will be this one, but until no, that they, happens. They've all gone <laughs> rather poorly, but... But, um, no, I was, I just, I, I warned Kevin um, and that um, I think very slowly and I talk slowly and that uh, the most recent time that I tried to be, I didn't ask to be interviewed, the guy asked me to be on his show and I said, I think rather slowly and I talk somewhat slowly <laughs> and I don't know if I would be good to be on television on your show. And he said, no, you would be good. You must come. And there were about five of us seated around a table and talking about subjects, I suppose. And, and, uh, and after a very short, maybe the show was like an hour, after about seven minutes, one of the assistants did I mean, there was a break, and the guy came up to me and said, come with me, uh, Wallace. Uh, and uh, I was, the table continued talking about the, the subjects, and I was no longer there. Uh, Excellent. If that happens tonight, it's going to be me. Someone's <laughs> going to come out and say, come with me, Kevin, and I'll come out. Uh, now, I love everything about you. I first fell in love with you when I was a teenager, um, I was watching Cisco and Ebert, and they reviewed a movie called My Dinner with Andre. And, uh, and it sounded so amazing. Cisco and Ebert were so excited about it. Uh, even though it, was, it seemed, uh, they showed a clip, and the way they described it, it didn't seem to be anything other than the dinner. And that sort of excited me more. Uh, so I went to see it, and it was sort of a major moment in my life uh, watching it. Um, it made me feel something extra special about life, but also it made me feel that in about art, I knew I was about to be a sketch writer and a sketch comic, that I, anything that I think is interesting might really be interesting. And that was a major moment to help me like to, like to become a sketch comic. So uh, that's just me talking. Uh, my question, I've always wondered this, uh, how did you guys think of the movie? Were you having dinner one night and was it such an amazing conversation that you said this could be a movie? Uh, how, did you how did you think of the movie? Uh, well, Andre is a real person, and I am, in a way. And, um, people who don't know the movie won't understand this whole story, but he and I had worked together in theater, and he, uh, then he left uh, the theater, and he left New York, in a way, not... Really, I mean, he had a family, and they were here, and he came back all the time. But he sort of started going on a quest for personal understanding and uh, dropped out of theater. Then he came back and said, after a couple of years, well, I suppose, yeah, three or four years, he, he said, well, Wally, let's do some theater project or something of that nature. And I thought, uh, because I'd spoken to him several times during that period, and I'd been 
both sort of uh, fascinated, repelled. <laughs> so you, uh, you, so you were hearing the stories about his life, like you were getting a sense of what yes, he had been going through. Yes. yes, and I, 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 and I was basically um, frightened. <laughs> I was basically afraid because he was questioning everything and I was just beginning to kind of, uh, I don't know, put a little life together. Right. I love when you say in the movie, uh, um, uh, I am my electric blanket. Uh, I, love my <laughs> I love being comfortable with my electric blanket. I love that. I mean, in fact, I was, uh, by the time I, so then he said, uh, let's do something together. And I said, maybe we could do something like a TV movie where we would talk and I would, you would talk about your life and I would react in the way that I really do <laughs> react. And I would have, you know, all of those. And it would be funny uh, to see these contrasting personalities. So, but by the time we actually got around to doing it, I was sort of, I'd figured out how to be a bourgeois human being <laughs> and and was actually wanted to kill that person and get rid of the bourgeois person that I was. And he was no longer doing the strange oh. things that he'd been doing and was he was leading a bourgeois life. So uh, that's so we met on purpose. We never would have had dinner together because I I uh, You didn't really have a dinner? <laughs> well, I mean there was no real dinner? No, there was no real dinner because uh, I uh, I live lunch, a snack, <laughs> my light breakfast with Andre, nothing. No, we did we, lunch, lunch. Yes, sometimes that would happen and 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 but we actually met on purpose to make this uh, movie and we talked on a tape recorder, ah, audio, tape, ah. audio tape, audio uh, tape, if maybe people don't even remember, but that was this thing that went around. And you, uh, so we met every few days. We met, I don't know, three times a week uh, and recorded very frank conversations between the two of us about absolutely everything and with no rhyme or reason or no order we enjoyed talking to each other and then a very nice uh, person agreed to pay for uh, that as a sort of advance toward the movie to pay for the transcription of these tapes so I had a vast pile of paper and uh, it which made no sense really but um, I, I spent a couple of years writing it out of this out of these pages so most of what he says is his is what he said and most of what I say is what I said but it's all pieced together in a way that made us into characters, you right, know. Sir. And how did you get Louis Maul to direct it? 
Uh, we Genius had, director Louis Mal. How did you get Louis to direct? We had a, a mutual friend who knew him. We we when the script was done, we had a kind of feeling. I had never done anything that was uh, successful. Everything I'd done. Amen, sister. Uh, you know, uh, just different categories of of failure, really. But but. Um, uh, I was pretty, both Andre and I were very, we thought this script was very funny and sort of interesting and weird because, because it included all of the mistakes and craziness that happen in real conversation that you don't usually see in a movie. Uh, so, because it, I mean, that was in the script was, People contradicting themselves, saying, no, no, I really mean, oh, no, I didn't mean that, and all of that. And uh, so we talked about who would be a good director for it, and actually Louis Malle was our very first choice because he's wow. he was a wonderful storyteller in his films, as, as well as being, had a great sense of humor and uh, a great sense of characters and... Uh, anyway, we had a mutual friend, and and uh, his he had some project that had fallen through at that moment, and Andre's story in some way he connected to it at that moment, and the project had fallen through at that moment, so the thing that is impossible and that never happens, we didn't know that it never happened. <laughs> And we didn't, if we'd known about the film world, or if we'd known about film, we would never almost even have tried to get the project going because it actually, you can't really do something like that. But uh, we didn't know that. So you did. And, and Louis Ball just happened to be free and said, well, let's, let's get to work on it. We rehearsed it on, you know, video, and he instructed us and we went through the script he brutally wanted to cut it and i was snarlingly uh resistant so this is real we really said this uh well well not so much that but in the acting all right i would say but i would never do that i <laughs> i i because for instance he wanted me to show open irritation with andre and I said, well, I would never do that. I, I'm very polite. I would just <laughs> pretend that I was agreeing with him. <laughs> and, and that's great in the film. There's a lot of cuts where you're going, but just eating and not, <laughs> and not really believing what he's saying. But he, Louis would say, well, I don't care, you know, what you really would do. It's, it's, and he would say, I think you, your character would drink red wine. I said, well, I don't drink i don't you know he would say well no I, this is your character and uh, he he shaped it boldly well it, <laughs> well, it worked uh, and i know i should thank no keep going i mean i didn't stop i'm keep I should move on, because uh, we don't have much time left, but here I go. Uh, was it really shot in a restaurant? Was that waiter a real waiter? Like the, <laughs> that always seems like a real waiter, like he, like he doesn't know how to act, but what he does is perfect. Like the, the faces he looks, 
Uh, and then when he like uh, puts out a cigarette, was it a real restaurant? Were they real? Uh, it was a fake restaurant. Oh no! Uh, it was a set in. Uh, it was actually in Virginia, and it was uh, the mirrors were totally behind us. Beautifully, they were beautifully designed and controlled so that you didn't see the camera. There were mirrors behind oh. us, but that's impossible. Right. Uh, right. So it was, you know, quite a trick. And to the waiter, I in the script, I wrote that the guy should look much, much smarter than us, sort of like Arnold Schoenberg. <laughs> um, but... Uh, uh, he uh, and we uh, Andre was a friend of uh, Richard Avedon, the photographer, and we asked Avedon, who has an amazing face who could play the waiter. Wow, he sure did. And he said, "Well, I knew ten years ago. I knew a film editor with an amazing face. I don't even know if he's still alive. Let's. <laughs> this is something else." that doesn't quite exist now, let's look him up in the telephone book. <laughs> and we literally looked him up in the telephone book, and he was alive, and he was, he was into it. Wow, he was a film editor. He has such an amazing face, I assumed. I guess I want to assume in the dream world that you really shot it over two hours in one night in a restaurant in New York, and uh, the waiter was a real waiter, but of course that's not true. Yeah, we shot it over three weeks. <laughs> Wow. Uh, now, um, I find a lot of people, everyone was excited that you were going to be in the show. A lot of people in their early 40s, because it's the right age, were really excited about Princess Bride. They were it's the right age. Or younger. Um, and Princess Bride is a movie I enjoy very much, but it's so far away from your writing. Do you have any personal feelings about uh, Princess Bride? What do you think about it? I notice that an enormous number of people like it. Uh, uh, and, I mean, I I was quite open with the director, Rob Ryder. I said, I, you know, I don't really understand the humor in your film. Uh, I... I Unfortunately, my agent, no longer my agent, but I don't mean that I brutally fired him, but, 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 he is, but he had an idea that I don't actually know why, but he wanted me to know who they actually wanted. Uh, so he told me Danny DeVito was the first choice and Richard Dreyfus, the second choice, to play my part. So I had an image of what they wanted and of what it was supposed to be, and I had the script. I didn't understand the humor. So Rob Reiner literally acted out each bit of the scene, and I imitated him. And that worked for you? Was it insulting? It was a good thing? That he I was it? begging him to do it because... <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, I don't, I didn't, it's not my uh, sense of humor. So he, my most, um, acclaimed, uh, you know, activity on earth 
was performing in that film. Uh, but it was really his performance. Uh, he was an actor first. Yeah, no, he's 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 a very you know he's a very very funny actor. I don't know why he doesn't do it much anymore. He does it every once in a while, I think. But he he um, it's really you know he he did the performance and I imitated. Um. I wanted to ask a political question. I don't read papers, uh, so I, 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 I've read somewhere that I'm left-wing. I know that. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, apparently, we all are in Canada. It's socialists or something. Uh, so I have a very vague general question that anybody would ask anybody, but I'm interested to hear your ins- What's your insight on Donald Trump? Why is he doing so well? And is Michael Moore correct in saying that he's going to be elected? No. No way. Michael Moore thinks that. Like, he's depressed about it, but Michael Moore thinks what Do you have any insight on that? Well, I th- I think he could be elected, and I think um, I think the the if I were in charge of defeating him, I would uh, I would have I would point out to to the public, watch him, and you will see that he. Literally cannot. Uh, he is bored by anything that is not about him. After about uh, you know thirty seconds, <laughs> and I think it's if people would see that, uh, which is absolutely clear if you look at him, he just. He's one of those people, and we all know them in our own lives. They're full of vivacious energy when the subject is themselves. And when the subject, you know, would turn to, uh, you know, how to make hospitals uh, pay more, pay for themselves efficiently and give inexpensive drugs you you would be able to see Trump fading out. Uh, and I think if people if people were keyed into that, they would they would possibly turn against him. I mean, I think the whole it's it's similar to the British voters who left uh, the European Union. There are an enormous number of very uh, correctly bitter people who are uh, don't know what caused the fact that their lives have deteriorated and they're ready to uh, believe things that are totally not true, partly because our country has been de-educated starting with Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, if if people were truly educated and smart, uh, Trump would have no audience and uh, actually money in politics would be meaningless because political advertising uh, 
would be unless I mean people who were smart would not pay any attention to it. So if everybody were well educated and smart, which I think everybody at birth is is destined to be, um, I think you know money would be meaningless in politics. So yeah, I think. But it's going to be. But I think people are basically always right when they feel my life is deteriorated, or my life stinks, or I have my prospects for the future are bad. They're pretty much always right. <laughs> it's then when somebody comes along and says, "Yes, but if there were no Jews, <laughs> everything would be great." That's when people get mixed up, and that's. You know, Trump is playing an old game in that way. Wallace Shawn, I honestly love you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Wallace Shawn! And now, a beautiful, poignant, and touching monologue from Mr. Kevin McDonald. That's me! Right. Hey, wasn't Wallace Shawn amazing? Wasn't Wallace Shawn amazing? Oh, there, that's better. Um, I don't know why I wrote it down, because this is a true story, but I, I guess just to make sure I don't forget anything, I am going to tell a true Kids in the Hall story. Kids in the Hall, thank you. I've never met any of them, but I hear they're all very nice. <laughs> all except the all of them. <laughs> uh, all right, the true story uh, takes place in October 1985. Uh, it was two short months after the kids in the hall had been discovered uh, by one Lauren Michaels. Um, he couldn't have all of us work at SNL because uh, there were five of us. He was, no, no, that's ridiculous. Do make me laugh. So we, we knew... <laughs> But he did hire Mark McKinney and Bruce McCullough, the two oldest and most experienced kids in the hall, as writers. Um, now, due to all the attention we were getting, Dave Foley was cast uh, in a Canadian comedy thriller movie called High Stakes. And I'll never forget Dave telling me that the producer told him that they were going to make him the Canadian Michael J. Fox. <laughs> I think I know what he means. So... During October, uh, Mark and Bruce were in Sarah Night Live. They were in New York, uh, which is here. And uh, Dave was in Vancouver uh, being Canadian Michael J. Fox. <laughs> now, before the kids in the hall were discovered, we had agreed to do a sketch at a benefit for the University of Toronto. Um, and and this, uh, this benefit, um, we agreed to do it because uh, we were like looking for gigs. And um, it was going to be held at the Toronto's famous rock club. I don't know if anybody remembers anymore. The Elma Combo. Um, the Elma Combo is most famous for, uh, that's where Keith Richards was going when he was arrested for doing heroin. <laughs> ah, we all dreamed of being arrested for doing heroin at the Elma Combo. But we had to settle for a benefit at a frat show. Uh, so it seemed that only Scott Thompson and I, or as the troop lovingly referred to us, the losers, were in Toronto, so we had to perform at the Elma, Com uh, Elma Combo alone. Sure, we could do it, Scott Thompson and I. Whether it's all five kids in the hall or just the two losers in the hall, the audience is a bunch of college kids. College kids love us. <laughs> when we arrived that night, um, the show had been going on for about an hour. 
the first thing we notice, uh, we're very drunk college kids. Very, very, very drunk college kids. But the show was going well. The act before us was the University of Toronto's gay choir, and they were killing. Uh, in fact, they got a standing ovation, so we thought, great. Um, if drunk college kids are going to give a, a, a gay choir a standing ovation, then we've got it made. <laughs> when we were introduced, uh, they gave us nice college kid, drunk college kid applause. We entered the stage and began our sketch. Now, the sketch involves Scott Thompson and I talking humorously. Uh, we make up a story of how I, uh, I have just split up with my girlfriend, how she just left me. Uh, and as we talk, I pretend to look into the audience and supposedly see my ex-girlfriend sitting with her new boyfriend. This, of course, is a ruse. We've done this sketch a million times. I just randomly pick a couple uh, that is sitting close to the stage, pretend that the woman is my ex-girlfriend, and that she has started dating the jerk that she is sitting with. What usually happens next... Uh, in order to get me time alone with the woman, Scott riding on the wave of uproarious laughter that we most assuredly are getting, <laughs> takes the man on stage and hits on him uh, to give me time with my girlfriend. And he tapes something disgusting that he pretends that the guy from the audience says, so he makes the guy say overtly sexual stuff. And it's usually quite hilarious. Uh, it's worked millions of times. It always gets millions of laughs. Only this time, we never get to the part uh, where I get the guy on stage for Scott to hit on him. Uh, to my horror, I have chosen an unnecessarily drunk woman who isn't laughing or playing along like they usually do. She is, in fact, pushing me and telling me in her best college-educated elocution to, quote-unquote, fuck off. <laughs> she goes as far as to look at my long, curly hair and call me hair asshole. She, in fact, leans right into the mic and calls me hair asshole. This gets the first laugh of the sketch. In an obvious attempt to straighten my unruly curly hair, she begins to pound my head with the mic over and over and over. The audience, now seemingly angry with Scott and I, begins to chant, Fags! Fags! Remember, this is the crowd that just gave a gay choir a standing ovation. But at us, they're throwing homophobic slurs. We haven't even gotten to the gay part of the sketch yet. I see in the corner of the club that even a couple of members of the gay choir are chanting, Fags! Fags! It's not going well. As I continue to have my hair pummeled by the curly hair hater, the next act comes on stage. They are a three-piece punk band called Gut Rot. Unaware that we're still performing, they start doing a sound check. An angry Scott, who is still on stage, starts yelling at the bass player. The musician puts down his bass and starts yelling back at Scott. Meanwhile, the woman is still hitting me, telling me to fuck off, you hair asshole. Her super drunk boyfriend now gets in the act, starts screaming at her, stop flirting with that hair asshole. I knew you were seeing someone else. Now the couple turn away from me and start to yell at each other. I, a professional coward, decide to quit the performance and slink off to the bar to order a comfort margarita. No one seems to notice or care. The MC comes in stage and stands in front of Scott and the bass player who are now furiously pushing each other. The MC says it's now time for a contest and the winner gets the new Billy Crystal album, You Look Marvelous. The crowd cheers. They love Billy Crystal. 
Why isn't he here instead of those two hair assholes? The MC continues. To win, you just have to answer the following question. What song did both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones record? I know the answer. I have both albums. When I was a kid, my crazy Aunt Mimi gave these albums to me because she had her second nervous breakdown and was blaming it on rock and roll. I know the answer, so I shout out loud, I want to be your man! The MC looks at the crowd, sees me, pauses, smiles, and quickly yells, We have a winner! Come on stage and get your Billy Crystal album, young man! I rush back on the stage. The audience applauds, somehow forgetting that I am here, asshole. <laughs> I pass Scott uh, and the bass player now spitting on each other. I go to the MC, I get my Billy Crystal album. The audience continues cheering. I turn to the audience, proudly holding my Billy Crystal album, and I tell them, you look marvelous. I get my first laugh of the night. The audience goes crazy with applause. I pass the bass player who now has Scott in a headlock and they wrestle around the stage knocking over the drums. I return to my margar margarita, happily sip from it. I scan the world famous Elma Combo at the wrestling Scott, at the couple yelling at each other, the MC, the angry gay choir, and the entire crowd. It's true. Everyone does indeed look marvelous. True boring story. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you very much. Now I want to bring out one other special guest. I've had one interview, so maybe I'll be better at this one. I have no excuse anymore. I'm very, very excited, and I mean it again this time. I'm so excited. Um, uh, one of my favorite people from one of the best bands ever in the world. Please, please, please give a warm Brooklyn welcome to Brad Roberts with the Crash Test Dummies! I have the interview down. I have my first question already. How are you, Brad? <laughs> Turns out I'm quite well. Excellent. Uh, before we start, Brad, do you know? I bet you don't even know. Do you know that I was almost in one of your videos, Peter Pumpkinhead? I did not know that. Yes, I have no interesting story, but I just wanted to let you know. Um, because uh, they, they were going to get uh, Jim Carrey to do it. He said no. The director, Tim Hamilton, um, uh, his girlfriend was my ex-first wife. So he asked me to do it. And I said yes. And then, then the day before, they said, no, no, it's okay. We got Jeff Daniels. That's my story. That's well, not I have question. to say, uh, <laughs> kind of disappointed that you weren't in the video. But uh, I wouldn't have known that until now. I guess I'll be disappointed now. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for being disappointed. It would have been fun. It would have been the first. I don't think I had met you then. No, uh, you had not. Bruce had met you guys. Bruce McCullough, the tiny kid in the hall. Yes. <laughs> Who chose to go out with the Amazonian Ellen Reed of Crash Test Dummies. I did, true story. Date. They went out on a date. They certainly did. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, you and I, I don't have a question again for this, uh, but you and I have one other thing in common, and that's the city of Winnipeg. That, yes. That is where you're from, and that is where I'm living now. Yes, uh, it usually I, goes the other way. People leave Winnipeg. Yes, I, I came to Winnipeg. I came to Winnipeg uh, for the love of a woman, uh, Winnipeg. And you left Winnipeg for the love of a woman? No. <laughs> <laughs> I left Winnipeg for the love of another city. 
Do you think Winnipeg informs your uh, songwriting? Do you think it has anything, I guess in a way any city does, uh, or, or no, were you in your own uh, isolated cave and Winnipeg meant nothing? Did it, uh, does it somehow affect your artistry, Winnipeg? Uh, no. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. I mean, to the extent that um, in Winnipeg you could either, you go down one of two paths. You can either be a hockey player and be popular, or uh, not be a hockey player and not be popular, or um, choose the alternative to playing hockey, which was uh, to stay inside during the wintertime and have a band instead of going outside to play hockey. And I chose the latter. And uh, needless to say that, uh, well, it ended up going well, but it didn't start well. I did not get the chicks that I thought I would get. Because you were, you were inside all the time. That's I why. was inside all the time. People and always say, uh, I drive by and people tell me different places, that's the Crash Test Dummies house. And then someone says, no, no, that's the Crash Test Dummies house. Who's to know? Uh, who's to know? <laughs> is your favorite thing uh, being a rock star? Is it songwriting? Is it performing live? What is your, what's the favorite thing about it? It used to, it used to be uh, the, the, the songwriting. I felt like I had to have some kind of body of work. I probably took everything too much seriously, or probably took everything too seriously. Wow, that was a poorly constructed sentence. A good songwriter would have put it that way. <laughs> no, and I would have rhymed it. <laughs> um, but uh, at, as time passed, uh, you know, I, I also didn't like touring because it was so exhausting. And uh, I, I like to, you know, have my electric blanket at home that's warm and <laughs> tick off all the stuff on my list. My to dinner do. with Brad, yes. Uh, yeah. No, I always think the songwriting. So, I always think uh, Bob Dylan. He wanted to be a star. Uh, he loved Woody Guthrie. He moved to New York. He learned how to play the guitar, and by coincidence, he ended up becoming a good songwriter. He started writing, but he didn't start off knowing that he was a good songwriter. With you, was it the songwriting first? Or? No. As a matter of fact, when I first started playing music, I wanted to be uh, Ace Frehley. <laughs> And uh, I wanted to play guitar solos. The idea of singing, I thought, was a little bit uh, prissy and kind of, you know, just not for me. I also had a, a low voice, and I, I, I figured that you could only sing Irish traditionals with the, the voice that I had. <laughs> In the merry month of June, from Wyoma, started left the girls up to Mary Rock and had to salute their father dear, and so on and so forth. So I had a million reasons not to sing. And in fact, I wrote songs and tried desperately to find other people to sing them for me, and they just couldn't seem to do what I was hearing in my head. So I became the singer by default and uh, never had a singing lesson. Ironically, I, I was praised greatly for my singing, and I, I had no idea what I was doing, really. It was such a beautiful, low, it is such a beautiful low voice, it's sort of become something different and unique and sort of the hook. How did you yes. get into the song? How did you discover you were a good songwriter? Oh, well, you know, I was a pretty terrible songwriter. And I discovered that quickly when I couldn't put anything together that was, you know, three minutes long. Everything was just too long. I needed an, a novel to save everything. And then I, uh, I, I took philosophy and poetry, and uh, I read it. I got far enough down that road that it seemed to help quite a bit. And when I returned to writing songs, after I had done my fancy pants degree... I was quite good at it. The Superman song was, in fact, the first song I ever wrote. The first song? First song I ever wrote. Not even kidding. Oh, wow. And I read that you uh, you were at a Lyle Lovett-like songwriting seminar. And yes. Now, how did yes. that influence you? That influenced me in the most painfully obvious way. He had, 
he had uh, he played guitar and he brought a cellist with him instead of a whole band. And I thought, well, that sounds good. <laughs> and uh, I used a guitar and a cello on the, on the, the next tune that I wrote, which was Superman song. So it was just pretty much, uh, you know, lift and move over to my area. And, uh, and nobody said to me, oh, you're trying to rip off, Lyle Lovett. I mean, they said all kinds of other nasty things, but nobody ever accused me of stealing Lyle Lovett's ideas. Even when I, it would be pointed out by the interviewer that I'd basically lifted what he'd done. Did you th think you were going to be a solo act, or uh, how did the, you meet the dummies? Were you a songwriter before you met the dummies? Uh, no, you know, I put the dummies together just as a, like something to do on the weekend. And we used to play songs like Spider-Man and the theme song to the Partridge Family and... <laughs> Uh, and Irish traditionals, of course. In the merry month of June from Milm. <laughs> and her hair hung over her shoulder. That's like an Irish thing. <laughs> so, uh, no, it was just a kind of a fool around group altogether. And uh, when I graduated from my, got my fancy pants degree, I uh, decided that it would be perhaps more profitable to write songs than, oh, say, try and be Ace Relay. Because after all, the money is in the songwriting. The money is in the song. The, the royalties, isn't that? They really, really are. Still get a check to this day. <laughs> but the dummies are good players, right? They, they say everyone from Winnipeg is a good musician. Uh, I heard that way before I moved to Winnipeg. Do you, do you have an opinion on that? I would think that there's a lot of people who are pretty lousy at hockey that stay inside their basements and become musicians by default, yes. Uh, I'm living, I, I love Neil Young, and right now I'm living a few blocks from where he grew up. So once, uh, when I found out the address, I, I, I got my car, I drove in front of the house where he grew up, I got my On the Beach CD, I put it on, uh, and I felt nothing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nothing magical happened. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I, I got embarrassed halfway before the first chorus, I turned off and I, I left. That's my story. <laughs> Now, songwriters, well you and I have uh, Andy Partridge. Is you're very famous for loving Andy Partridge. <laughs> well, if you want to put it like that, I yes. suppose we could. I think famous. he's uh, also one of the best songwriters ever. Yes, I think so too. Andy he Partridge of XTC. Does anyone? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. He. he did, and as a matter of fact, I I was able to go and visit Andy Partridge for lunch one day. Oh my God. When he when he was living in uh, well where he's always lived in Swindon in this. Horrible little post world world post World War Two constructed town. Uh, well, it's older than that. It's Swindon, so it had an older core. But uh, Andy is um, the most nervous person I've ever met in my life. More than me? Uh, oh, more so than he. he oh looked God. like a confident jock compared to Andy Partridge. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, the audience can't see the physical humor that you're so adequately displaying. 62% less funny. He was right. Still very but, funny. And is he a little... Uh, because XTC, well, uh, they stopped performing live because... Is it, is it a legend or is it true? Because he suffered from stage fright. Well, as a matter of fact, he had a panic attack one day on stage. And this was just after his well-meaning girlfriend at the time said, No more of these Valium for you! And just took away his prescription. You know, like... After oh. he'd been probably, uh, what's the word, uh, acclimatized to them. Right. You know? So uh, 
That probably would have caused me to have a panic attack, I think. Absolutely. Do you ever suffer from stage fright? You don't, right now you seem very comfortable and that, uh, that wouldn't happen. And I always think in the band, because I don't know the band world, um, that's less scary than being with a comedy troupe where, where someone like Scott Thompson can fall off the stage at any time uh, by accident. <laughs> but with music, you got like loud guitars and stuff. Have you ever suffered from stage fright? I have not. I have never suffered from stage fright whatsoever, and I really have no idea why. Because uh, I have every good reason to be quite terrified, even <laughs> just now. Kevin, this why don't will we be a ask one more question and maybe have Brad play a song? Oh, that's a great idea. What's my uh, favorite question? Um, oh, th this is about another. I just want to chat with you. <laughs> Sorry. Have you ever heard of the band The Smalls? Yes. Did you like them? I thought we discussed you not asking me questions where I had to say anything negative as an answer. <laughs> oh, then never mind. No, we only kidding. No, as a matter of fact, I don't. Uh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. You know what? You know. You know what's more embarrassing about I the smalls? Everybody out I, west of Toronto uh, love the smalls. I've never heard of them. Oh, good. Let's go with that. That's great. We'll go. <laughs> you, you can't put any of this in the podcast. <laughs> what's your favorite song you've ever written? Then we'll end the interview. Uh, favorite song you've ever written. It's. But when people ask my favorite sketches, it's weird because I know you don't, as an artist kind of thing, you don't think in terms of that, but I'm forcing uh, you to think of it. If you're forced to think of it, what is your... Yeah, it would be Super song. It would be that. What a perfect segue. Would you like to hear Brad sing a song or two? Yeah, it's going to happen. Thank you very much for coming. Here's a little ditty called Super song. Will Tarzan wasn't a ladies' man, he'd just come along and scoop him up. On arm like that quick as a cat in the jungle but Clark Kent now there was a real gent he would not be caught sitting around in no jungle Dumb as an ape doing nothing Superman never made any money Saving the world from Solomon Grundy And sometimes I despair the world will never see another like him Hey Bob Soup had a straight job Even though he could have smashed through any bank in the United States Well he had the strength but he would not Folks said 
His family were all dead The planet crumbled But Superman forced himself to carry on Forget Krypton and keep going on Saving the world from Solomon Grundy And sometimes I despair The world will never see another man Like him Well, Tarzan was king of the jungle And the Lord Hardly string together four words. I toss and you change. Sometimes when soup was stopping crimes, I bet that he was tempted to just quit and turn his back on man join Tarzan in the forest but he stayed in the city and kept on changing clothes and dirty off phone booths till his work was through and nothing to do but go on home Superman never made any money saving the world from Solomon Sometimes I despair The world will never see another man Like him and Sometimes I despair The world will never see another man Like him time for one more song, don't we, Kevin? Let's, let's do one more song if we can, Mr. Adams. There we go. How's everybody doing tonight? Anybody's birthday? All right. This kid who 
Got into an accident and couldn't come to school But when he finally came back His hair had turned from black into bright white He said that it was from when the cars had smashed so This girl who wouldn't go and change with the girls in the change room and when they finally made her they saw birthmarks all over her body she couldn't quite explain it always just be
Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Brad Roberts, thank you. And Ronnie, thank you. Thank you. That's the end of my podcast, and I'm very sorry. Thank you very much. Thank you. Keep applauding as I thank everybody. Wallace Shawn and Brad Roberts, thank you so much. Ali the announcer. Listen, man, now. Thank you and sorry. Kevin McDonald, everybody. Keep it going for Kevin McDonald. Have a wonderful evening, Brooklyn. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, Brett Boehm, and Phil Casal. For more podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com.